You're listening to The Progressivist Podcast, and I'm your host, Joe Lorenz. Join me each episode as we discuss how to use our collective voices to activate a progressive world founded upon climate, civil, and racial justice. Now, today's guest is Shannon Watts. Shannon is a mother of five and founder of the U.S.'s largest grassroots group, Fighting Against Gun Violence, Mums Demand Action for Gun Sense in America. Prior to this, Shannon was a stay-at-home mum and a former communications executive at Fortune 100 companies. The day after the Sandy Hook massacre in 2012, Shannon started a Facebook group to unite women against the gun lobbyists. And since then, that online dialogue has turned into a national movement with a chapter in every state. And together with its partner, Every Town for Gun Safety, now has more than 6 million supporters, which is larger than the NRA. For more than eight years, Mums Demand Action volunteers have stopped the NRA's priority legislation in state houses more than 90% of the time and helped pass hundreds of gun safety laws across the country. In fact, Shannon's been described as the NRA's worst nightmare, something I wholeheartedly applaud her for. Shannon has also written a book, Fight Like a Mother, which was released in 2019 and is an inspiring story of how her rallying call to action grew into a powerful movement to protect children from gun violence, offering lessons for others who really want to make a difference in their communities. Today, I will be talking to Shannon about America's gun epidemic and what regular Americans can do to thwart this ongoing heartbreak. Welcome to you, Shannon. Thanks for having me. Many of our listeners may or may not know that I'm Australian and that my husband is American and may or may not know that we're repatriating to the States next year. I, I just wanted to start by giving you my little thoughts on the first time I was in in America as, a, as an Australian. Mm. So I remember the first time I went to the US uh, like a million years ago and I had an absolutely wonderful time and found so many hospitable similarities between Americans and Australians. But there was one huge takeaway for me on a very specific and enormous disparity between our cultures, and that's guns. Guns Mm. are everywhere in America. They are in public places. They are in everyday discussion. Guns are on the news. Guns are in Kmart. Um, Everyone around me on that first trip seemed to think that this guns business was all kind of perfectly natural, and I, as a foreigner, was you know, frankly, utterly astonished. And I recall a conversation I had with my now brother-in-law who was very calm and very polite and just told me I didn't understand as I hadn't grown up with quote, quote, gun culture, which was, boy, was he right with that. (laughs) Um, All that being said, I have to admit that while we are completely excited about the move on so many levels, there is one thing that genuinely frightens me and it's the guns. And thus I am very grateful for not only the work you do, but for you being our guest here today. Now, according to your partners at Every Town for Gun Safety, in 2021, there have been at least 114 incidents of gunfire on school grounds, tragically resulting in 23 deaths and 60 injuries nationally. Making 2021 amongst the deadliest years in school shootings history, So my question is, how and why have school shootings changed since students have returned to the classroom post the COVID-19 pandemic? You have to look at gun violence as really an epidemic within a pandemic. And Mm. so we actually saw COVID make everything worse about gun violence. 
um, whether it was domestic violence, uh, you know, women often isolated at home with their abusers who have easy access to guns, suicide, you know, people struggling um, in, in confinement might have suicidal ideation, again, with easy access to guns, unintentional shootings, something that no other nation a peer nation struggles with children shooting themselves or others because they have easy access to guns uh, that got worse. Um, homicides, uh, community violence uh, in cities just was so exacerbated by COVID in part because violence intervention programs uh, were not allowed uh, or not able to be in person to do the work they do. They might not have had the technology they needed to do the work they do. So really across the board, you know, we have seen gun violence exacerbated by COVID. And, and certainly school shootings have been no exception. Once mm. schools started up just a, a couple of months ago here in the States, there were record numbers of gun sales. Mm. We know that before COVID, about 4.6 million kids in America lived in homes with unsecured guns. That number is now about 5.4 million. So really, it, it is only logical, given that most school shooters are students, that we would see an increase in gunfire on school grounds when school started back up. And that's exactly what happened. Um, we've seen more instances of gunfire on school grounds this year than any other back to school period since we started tracking this information about uh, in 2013. Just between August 1st and September 15th, there were about 30 incidents of gunfire in school grounds. So that's about double the previous high of 16 during the same period two years ago. And so anytime you know, we hear about a student who has a gun at school, we should be asking, you know, where did they get that gun? How mm. did they access that gun? And, and it just is so frustrating because it's very rarely a question that that police address, that the media addresses. But we know that if we want to stop gun violence in schools, the best way to do that is, is not through lockdown drills. Look, we know that those drills often traumatize students, teachers, parents. The best way to prevent gun violence in our schools is to stop it before it can begin. And an important way to do that is for people to securely store their firearms, right? Hmm. Keep them locked, unloaded, and separate from ammunition. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And you, you talked about tracking and you and your partners at Every Town for Gun Safety started tracking incidents of gunfire on school grounds in 2013 to improve mm -hmm. data and gain a greater understanding of how often children and teens are affected by gun violence at their schools and colleges. Over several years of tracking, this data has shown that gunfire on school grounds take many forms and reflects the problems of gun violence in the U.S., can you talk to me a little bit more about this, please? How does school gun violence mirror greater societal issues? Well, gunfire on school grounds really only represents a very small fraction of the gunfire that impacts students. And, and what is so tragic and so shameful is that guns are now the leading cause of death for children and teens in America. About 3 million children and teens are exposed to gun violence every single year. and they bear the, the visible and invisible scars of that. Mm. It isn't just school violence, right? If you look at mass shootings or school shootings, it's about 1% of the gun violence in America. 
so many kids are exposed to community violence. They, they mm-hmm. witness shootings or they hear gunshots. And, and the data shows us that, that kids who are exposed to gun violence are much more challenged when it comes to succeeding in school. Mm-hmm. Uh, school-age children who are exposed to gun violence have lower grades. They have more absences. Um, they have lower test scores. They have lower rates of high school graduation. There was even a study um, in one of Chicago's most violent neighborhoods, and it was estimated that Black children spend about a week out of every month functioning at a lower concentration level because of the homicides where they Mm -hmm. live. And then um, in Syracuse, there was another study done that showed that elementary schools that are in the areas that have the the highest concentrations of gunshots had about a 50% lower test score. We know it has a disproportionate impact on Black and Hispanic children and teens. And yet, Black students only represent about 15% of the total population in America, mm. right? But they have about, they constitute about 25% of the K-12 student victims of gunfire. Um, so this is truly a, a problem, particularly in areas that are Black and Latino and these are communities that are purposefully starved of resources, and yet they are inundated with guns and, mm. and often lack the resources they need to, to heal and to fight gun violence. All so very true. I mean, it's virtually impossible for communities and people to heal when they are consistently robbed of rights and resources and dealt constant conflict via gun violence, which is known as being a uniquely American problem. So, I mean, what needs to be done to keep kids safe? We are the only pure nation in the world where gun violence happens over and over again, and yet lawmakers sort of throw up their hands and say, there's nothing we can do. And, mm. and look, we have the research, we have the data, we know how to keep children safe from gun mm. violence, uh, particularly in their schools. Again, school shooters are overwhelmingly either current or former students who have easy access to guns in their homes. Mm. They almost always show warning signs and tell someone about their intentions. And and that means there's an opportunity to intervene before Mm. this violence happens at all. And that's exactly what we're doing, for example, through school boards. Um, Our volunteers have gone school board by school board and asked them to send information home with families that instructs them on the ways to securely store their guns. Again, Mm. locked, unloaded, separate from ammunition. And, And now over a million I think it's close to 2 million families now in America have received this information um, mm. because of the work of our volunteers. That's fantastic. And yeah, and then school boards are also adopting threat assessment programs. And, and that just gives school officials this roadmap that helps them navigate the warning signs I mentioned, right? Mm. So they can figure out if a student is showing these warning signs and if they have access to guns. Mm. Um, and then we have to pair those two things with increased funding for mental health counseling and increase security upgrades. So all of those things are are, uh, policies and laws that our volunteers work on. And far more children die in shootings at home than at school. Mm. Uh, But but again, that goes back to secure storage of firearms in homes. Yeah, I mean, that all makes perfect sense. It's quite normal that many homes have a medicine cabinet with a lock on it, so surely guns ought to receive the same treatment. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, you know, I think there's this misnomer that you can somehow teach a child to stay away from a gun. Mm. And data shows over and over again, that just simply isn't the the case that Mm. almost all children when left alone with a gun 
will play with it. They're curious, particularly boys, uh, mm. the data shows us. And, you know, you're, if you're a parent, you're not going to say, hey, don't touch the stove and then leave the room with the, with the burner on, right? right? Yeah, the onus exactly. is always on adults to keep their kids safe, not on their kids to keep themselves safe. Yeah. Uh, you, being a mother of five, would know you have to say it at least five times to every child. <laughs> It shouldn't be expected that they remember or understand the gravity of everything we tell yep. them at every point. Um, you mentioned lockdown drills earlier. Um, gun violence is such a complex issue with so many root causes, but so many schools are just often turning to traumatic active shooter drills as the solution to protect children in schools. Can you talk a little bit more about why this is so concerning, please? Mm. Yeah. Again, we talked about the coronavirus pandemic, and it really has led to this increased level of stress and anxiety, mm. um, not just for students, but for for educators and for parents. And so as, as kids are returning to quote unquote normal, they should not, on top of everything else, have to deal with the added stress of ineffective and traumatizing active shooter drills. My daughter is a, a teacher in Indiana, mm. and, and she is doing these drills uh, you know, while wearing a mask. And yet there's no data that shows that they actually save lives. So we really have to make sure that schools are, are doing what it takes to keep students and educators and staff safe, but also to balance their well-being. And we actually uh, did a study with Georgia Tech that showed active shooter drills are associated with this long-lasting depression. Um, and, and that actually even impacts students, uh, not just students, but parents and teachers. And so what we recommend is prioritizing staff and educators to be totally prepared for emergency scenarios. But when it comes to preparing kids, schools really need to take a closer look at whether the drills they're doing are doing more harm than good. We strongly recommend against drills that mimic or simulate actual gun violence. And then we simultaneously encourage notification to educators and families before these drills occur. So often they're surprises. Mm. Um, and so we, we suggest that, that everyone be notified. Yes, that makes so much sense. I mean, having a surprise drill would be terrifying. Mm. Imagine you're on a plane and halfway in the air they decide <laughs> to do, right? I mean, they, they give us the little rundown at the beginning and we all watch the um, cabin crew do the, this is where you're, mask is and right. this is where and that is expected and you pay attention and you you're not traumatized because of it but if they drop down those masks halfway through the flight you know over the pacific i would be somewhat terrified so i mean it just makes sense yes. that <sighs> and children should feel safe in their schools right you know and and that really is taking away the sense of safety oh my gosh absolutely that's horrible um on that and moving on to gun violence in society at large it can obviously affect everyone and anyone, yet gun violence disproportionately impacts communities of colour and women and other marginalised groups in society. So can you talk a little bit more about why this is, please, and what we can all do about it? Well, we know a lack of access to opportunity is, is definitely a key driver of gun violence. And we're, you know, starting to come out of one of the worst economic crises that any of us can remember. And the communities where we're seeing gun violence, you know, it's in areas that have been underinvested in for decades, and they really borne the brunt of, of this COVID crisis. 
So if you look at the, the different factors, job loss, housing instability, poverty, food insecurity, that all contributes to gun violence. And again, the pandemic has exacerbated all of this. So what can we do about it? It doesn't make sense to reinvent the wheel. There are already solutions that exist. Local policies should support those. They should fund local gun violence intervention groups and organizations that are already on the ground, have been in these communities for years. Uh, they've been doing the, the hard, innovative, life-saving work for years. And our volunteers, Moms Demand Action, Students Demand Action, uh, we partner with these organizations and, and follow their lead. Um, something I'm incredibly proud of is that we've worked together to help unlock over $200 million in government funding just in the last 18 months for these organizations through mm. state legislative budgets. And the data shows these programs work, right? They they reduce gun injuries and crime, re-victimization, re-injury. Um, they're economically sound. Mm-hmm. Um, I am on the board of, a, of an organization called Advance Peace, and they've really done pioneering work in this space in California, where I live. Um, and they're, they're starting to branch out into other cities across the country. But the data shows that, for example, in just two years, I think it was 2018 to 2020, their work helped gun homicides and assaults decline by about 21% citywide. So these are a good investment. Um, we support them as an organization. We've already committed over uh, $25 million in five years to really just double down on, on grants to these local communities that, that need immediate support to sort of stay afloat, uh, especially as they apply for federal funding. Um, and so, you know, anyone listening, I would I would highly recommend uh, one way to get involved is find out where the, the community violence intervention programs are where you live and, and help support them. Absolutely. Something I shall be doing the minute we touch down, I, I assure you that. Um, you just talked, uh, and I mentioned it in your bio in the opening, obviously, but you've talked about your organization, Mums, or I should put on an American accent, Moms Demand Action, um, is a, it's a grassroots movement of Americans fighting for public safety measures that can help protect people from gun violence. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about it in the spiel and how you um, so effectively disrupt the ongoing bad faith arguments and propaganda put out by the NRA and how people can further get involved. Yeah, you know, I I started Moms Demand Action as a Facebook page in 2012, the day after the horrific mass shooting tragedy at Sandy Hook School in Newtown, Connecticut. And I think in part because as a teen growing up in America, Mothers Against Drug Driving was so influential in changing the culture and restoring the responsibilities that go along with the right to drink and mm. and the ability to drive and, and, you know, just kind of sense policies and laws that, that were life-saving, didn't infringe on anyone's rights, and were proved by data to be, to be sound and effective. Mm. So I think that's why when, when Sandy Hook happened, you know, I just felt intuitively that the gun lobby's biggest fear would be an army of angry moms. Mm, I love that. You know, if, if we lose our children, we, we have nothing left to lose. And I, you know, I, I don't think I was wrong in that bet. We're one of the largest grassroots movements in the nation. Uh, we have volunteers in chapters in all 50 states in Washington, D.C. We're actually bigger than the NRA. We have 6 million supporters. 
you know, we're not just moms anymore. Uh, we're, we're, we call ourselves mothers and others. You know, we're dads. We're all caring Americans. We're students. And I, the progress that we have made in just a decade is, is truly what makes me wake up every day as a volunteer and, and spend all of my time on this work. You know, we've really changed the political calculus on the issue. Gun safety is no longer a third rail. Not only are candidates not running away from the issue anymore, they're actually running on it and winning. And I know everyone's waiting for this cathartic moment in Congress, which I promise you is coming. But in the meantime, we've had huge success in state houses and city councils and school boards and boardrooms. Um, we've passed dozens and dozens of life-saving laws in red, blue, and purple states. Uh, we've made cultural and electoral change. Two of our own volunteers are now members of Congress, uh, Marie Newman and Lucy McBath. And I could go on and on and on about all the wins we've had, but it's really important to remember that we were able to flip both chambers of the General Assembly in Virginia mm. on this issue alone. Um, we were able to flip the House. We won the Senate. We won the presidency. None of the lawmakers you know, who, who are on our side of the issue backed away. They actually ran on this issue. And I think in many ways, you know, an A rating, which used to be a badge of honor from the NRA, is, is now a scarlet letter. Mm. So true. And uh, you are just testament to the power of harnessing outrage. And I, I, it gives me goosebumps. So really, thank you so much for everything and all your volunteers, what you do, because when people are passionate about something and you lobby in your own way against the big organizations, this is what can be achieved. So you, you really are a perfect little scenario of what <laughs> we, what we all should be doing. So thank you. You just talked about some Congresswomen and you recently launched a new program called Demand a Seat to recruit and train mums demand action volunteers and gun violence survivors to run for office up and down the ballot all across the country. So please tell me more about this. Well, you know, we had been seeing volunteers run for office more and more. I mean, it's sort of a logical leap to go from learning how to shape policy to actually wanting to make it, right? And I can mm. tell you firsthand that the more time you spend in state legislatures, the more you realize that your lawmakers, 80% of whom are men, are not rocket scientists. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, we saw, um, you know, hundreds of, of our volunteers have run and many have won. Um, and so we decided that we would formalize this program. Uh, we're calling it Demand a Seat. It is a new program to, to recruit and train our volunteers and survivors to run for office and to run on this issue specifically. Uh, the response has been overwhelming in the last two months. About 140 people have joined this, this fir first cohort. Uh, they represent 37 states. They're moms, dads, students. We have about 60 gun violence survivors who are participating. And you know, it really, it, I think, is the, the next phase of our movement. It's a, an obvious evolution of our work. And we can unleash this huge grassroots network of volunteers who already know how to help these candidates win, right? Mm. They know how to knock doors and host phone banks and raise money. Um, we're going to train them uh, to use the technology and to, to be as effective as they can uh, as campaigners. We're going to have this mentorship of seasoned campaign pros and politicians who can explain to them how they were able to win. And so, you know, I, I think it, it is, again, uh, the, the logical step in this movement and in this moment. And I'm so excited to see more people run for office and, and in particular women. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I mean, a perfectly logical step and definitely not rocket science 
<laughs> happening at that level. So yeah, let's go get them angry, angry mothers and others, please. Um, now I have one more official question before we move on to our very quick 10 short ones at the end. Um, and it's about your book. Now, in your book, Fight Like a Mother, you, which is a great title, by the way, um, you offer readers lessons on how to make a difference in their community when it comes to gun violence. I was wondering if you could just share one or two of these lessons with us now. Yes. So uh, it's funny. I wrote Fight Like a Mother because so many people were asking me how I did this. And frankly, I wanted to get it on paper before I forgot it all. And I want to point out that that all the proceeds from my book go to gun violence prevention organizations. But, you know, I think one important lesson that I learned is you have to build the plane as you fly it. And mm. by that, I mean, I can't tell you how many people in the early days and weeks that I started this organization, I would call people for advice and they would say, don't do it. You're not qualified. You're not the right person. You don't know enough. This has already been done. We don't need this. Mm. Um, and, and if I had listened to all the naysayers, I, I never would have done it. Mm. Or if I had waited until I knew everything I needed to know, I still wouldn't have started it, right? I mean, I certainly was drinking from a fire hose for the first few years. Mm. But I think women have this perfectionism about mm. them where they're afraid to fail or, or look like a fool. And <laughs> thankfully, at this moment in time, I did not have that. Right. And I just thought, you know, what's the worst that happens is that that I fail and, and yeah. this doesn't get off the ground. And because of so many brilliant, mostly women across the country, uh, it succeeded. And, and we just agreed together that we would make the leap. Mm. I think you know, another important lesson is that you have to know when you get involved in activism that you're going to lose. It's almost like incrementalism has become a dirty word. And I understand the impatience around change and wanting it to happen faster. It's the way the system was set up, right? I mm. wish that overnight after the San Diego school shooting tragedy, or frankly, decades ago, when gun violence was happening at a higher rate in black and brown communities, that we could have changed the system. Mm. But the system is set up, at least right now, to change by activists getting involved and using their voices and their votes on an issue. Mm. So you're going to lose, right? We've lost a lot. Thankfully, we've won more than we've lost, but we've lost. And if we saw those losses as setbacks, I think people would be demoralized or mm. we'd give up. And instead, what we decided to, to embrace was this concept of losing forward, that we always learn from our losses. And whether that's creating relationships with new stakeholders who can help us in the future or coming up with a new and better strategy of how to win the next time uh, or, you know, just having more people know who we are and, and, and gaining more volunteers and growing numbers. It's all a win. And that's really, we refuse to lose. <laughs> mm. And I think that has, has been part of the key to our success. Our motto is keep going. And then I would say the last part is to build a big tent. You know, we welcome all caring Americans. We're a nonpartisan organization. We're driven by data. And it's just important that you have people from your community and you're willing to link arms with everyone. What you want ultimately is for everyone to be on the right side of this issue. And you only do that by building a big tent. Your comments about women, especially, and uh, 
dare I say, white women, uh, especially uh, this perfectionism yep. that we have going on is ridiculous and just prevents so much progression within communities for us to all do something together. So um, thank you for mentioning that. It's it's something that I constantly see around me. Um, and once you see it, you can't unsee it if you know that. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's, it's wonderful when women aren't afraid to fail because then we succeed. Yeah. And I would add to that, you know, you were talking about white women, you know, I, I didn't get involved in this issue until I was worried about my children's own safety in school and shame on me for not getting in, involved earlier. Yeah. I think white women have a very important role to play in, in using our voices and our votes and, you know, our volunteerism to change the dynamics of this issue. And uh, a really important moment for me was there was a book event for me in Boston and our membership leader in Boston at the time was a black woman who, who attended and it was a mostly white audience. And she stood up and she said, I'm really glad you're all here. Thank you for coming tonight. I just want to ask you, you know, when, when there's a trial or a, a vigil or a, a black lives matter protest in your community, do you go to those two? And it's just so important that we're not expecting people to come to us, that we are going to them and that we are linking arms and, and um, giving them the microphone and, and doing the work uh, to, to be supportive. And I think too often white women activists don't think that way. Now, um, I have, if you're ready for it, we do 10 quick answers at the end and it's just for a little bit of levity and a little bit of who is Shannon Watts. Let's do it. All right. Um, (laughs) What is your home city? Rochester, New York. And what's your favorite city? Santa Fe, New Mexico. Mm. All right. Now define your style or attitude in three words. I have been called righteously petty. So I would say righteously (laughs) petty pragmatist. I love that, righteously petty. Get it as a tattoo on your arm, please. Um, (laughs) Words to live by or your favourite quote? Keep going. What is the favourite aspect of your work? It is absolutely um, working hand-in-hand with volunteers and gun violence survivors who are so courageous and brilliant and tireless. What's your favourite drink? Champagne. Nice. Maybe I can bring a bottle um, to your house one day when we move over there. (laughs) I would love it. What's your favorite movie or book? My favorite movie of all time, Terms of Endearment. Very good movie. Bring the tissues. Exactly. Okay. Now, three people you want at your dinner party and why, and these people can be dead, alive, or fictional. Harriet Tubman, Hillary Clinton, and Abraham Lincoln. I really just want to know the real them. Yeah, I think it would be interesting conversations for sure, especially with extra champagne. Um, Now, when when you're not working, we'll find you. On Twitter. That's that's a normal thing. (laughs) Um, And lastly, what is your advice for someone looking to end gun violence? Get off the sidelines. I really think there's a, a moral imperative for everyone to use their voice and their vote on this issue. And to join us. And again, we're not just moms, we're mothers and others. Uh, text the word JOIN to 64433. 
Thanks for listening to the Progressivists podcast. Today's show is hosted by Joe Lorenz and brought to you by the Progressivists, the social movement dedicated to climate, civil, and racial justice. If you've enjoyed today's show, please remember to follow or subscribe to the Progressivist podcast. Follow us on Instagram, or if you'd like to learn more about today's guest, please head to our website, www.theprogressivist.com. 